0: Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former law enforcement officer and current member of Reps for Responders, Nick Ricciotti. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from his journey into law enforcement, his time working in the jails, the mental health struggles he had in uniform, his battles with alcoholism, the drug use that cost him his job, the post traumatic growth he got from overcoming that addiction, the power of fitness, reps for responders, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Ricciotti. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you so much for your patience. We've moved this interview around a couple of times to accommodate some family issues, so I appreciate that. And secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Absolutely, no problem. Happy to work around schedules. And
0: thank you for having me. Very excited. So where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon?
1: This afternoon, you're finding me in Oak Island, North Carolina, which is not where I live. Uh... I'm on vacation right now, visiting one of my buddies who used to live uh, up in New Jersey with me. So I'm originally from North Jersey, still from North Jersey.
0: The Carolinas are beautiful, but obviously you've got the beach side, you've got the mountains, Where have you found yourself.
1: We're right on the beach. He's, his house is a block away from the beach. You can see the beach from from his balcony on his uh, room.
0: Gorgeous. Beautiful. All right. Well, you mentioned New Jersey. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, sure.
1: So I grew up in like North Jersey, Morris County specifically. Um, Father, mother, together. They're still together. I have a sister, and we were like your typical middle class family. Um, I grew up in a small town right on uh, Lake O'Pacon, which is the biggest lake in New Jersey. So there was that doing growing up. I was an athlete. I played a ton of sports growing up. I played soccer, baseball, basketball. Those were like the three big ones growing up. Um, And I was pretty good at baseball and basketball. When I went into high school, I pretty much focused on basketball and baseball. Um, Got better at baseball as time went on. I'm 5'8", and I'm not as quick as a lot of other people in the world of basketball. So my senior year, I kind of cut that out and uh, focused on baseball. Uh, and I ended up going to school to play baseball. Growing up in high school and everything like that was as normal as everything can be. You know what I mean? Um, like I said, like I had like your typical family, my mom, dad, my sister. Um, my sister was a senior in high school uh, when I was a freshman. So she kind of like introduced me to high school and everything like that. Um, and then my group of friends were pretty much everybody I played sports with. You know, um, I grew up in a small town. The town that I grew up in that I went to middle school in didn't have its own high school. So and it also didn't have like its own sports programs. So all the sports that I played growing up, I ended up going to the same high school as all those other kids. So those were like my group of friends.
0: What about occupation? What were your parents doing as far as profession?
1: So my dad was a general contractor. Um worked for himself, had his own business, did small, like home renovations, small additions, kitchens, bathrooms, that kind of stuff. And my mom was an OR secretary. She worked at one of the hospitals in the county as a secretary. So like I said, like your basic middle-class family, my dad worked his butt off to get me every sports equipment that I could possibly need growing up. Um, and I was a catcher. So my equipment wasn't cheap. Um, So, yeah, they they provided me with everything that I needed when growing up.
0: With the different sports that you played, you had you had football, soccer, football. Um, Yeah, you had uh, baseball and you had basketball. I hear a lot about um, the resilience of the athlete through being a multi-sport player um, from so many people, athletes, coaches, etc. What were things that you brought in from football and uh, basketball that ended up helping you on the baseball side?
1: just like the, so baseball's tough because it's not an individual an individual sport but it is you know what i mean like you're the only one up there in the plate you're the only one in the field that can really help you out but i feel like with basketball and soccer they they rely a lot more on teamwork on communication and that's kind of what i brought into baseball and especially like playing the position as a catcher like you you're the one that sees the whole field So you need to be vocal and tell guys kind of where they're going, what's going on in the field. So if communication is the biggest thing that, in general, sports has taught me.
0: Now, so many people that end up struggling in this podcast specifically, usually in uniform, it's amazing how many people the the kind of origin story doesn't start when they put the uniform on but way before when you look at your early life were there any elements that now you would consider the the origin of trauma that is then compacted as you move through
1: nothing that like directly comes to mind and this is actually funny because i've kind of like i'm in therapy i've had a therapist for a while now and we've talked about like kind of really diving into my childhood and I, there's just like nothing that I can kind of pinpoint where it's like, okay, this is kind of maybe why certain things are, you know what I mean? Like I was, my parents loved me growing up. My relationship with my sister wasn't the best, but there was also a decent age gap there that kind of probably played into that as well. But like I said, like growing up, I saw my parents work their butts off to provide everything that I needed
0: beautiful and that's the thing sometimes there isn't you know it actually comes when you move further into into life so you're playing division two baseball kind of at that time was your career aspiration simply professional baseball or did you have something else
1: i knew that i had no chance of playing professional baseball (laughs) Uh so um i knew i wanted to play college baseball after high school and i Around going to a different a couple of different schools, and the school that I went to was just starting their own program. Um, so I felt like going there would give me the best opportunity to compete and play because really that's all I wanted to do is I just wanted to play. You know, I could have went to other schools, but the odds of playing may have not been as good, so I went there. Um, and they also threw me a little bit of money as well, which, in the grand schemes of things, as I know now, every single month decently expensive school. I don't really think the money they gave me did anything, but uh, like I said, I just wanted to go somewhere where I could have a chance to compete and play. Um, I didn't start, but I definitely saw time and I definitely enjoyed like my college baseball experience. Uh, And I only played two years actually Um, going into my junior year. I dislocated my shoulder right in the beginning of the fall season. Um, And that kind of was the end of the baseball career there.
0: You end up going down the law enforcement route. Obviously, you're enjoying baseball. Were you exposed to that career at all through relatives or friends? Friends. So
1: when I was in college, um, when I was home for summers, I would lift uh, at a gym in my town with uh, another guy who was older than me. Um, went through some uh, friends and some actually some coaches who coached me in baseball. Um, so we lived together and he uh, he was trying to be a cop. And I had known him in high school too. There's actually times where I lifted him in high school. Um, He was trying to be a cop. So, and I had known that the like law enforcement academics wasn't the hardest in college. Like I didn't have great aspirations to be a cop, but I knew that I wanted to make money. I knew I wanted financial security after work as well. Um, And I knew I wanted good benefits and just the law enforcement world provided that. Um, and to be honest with you, like when I went and declared my major, I wasn't even dead set on being a cop. And I went into college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but there was a point where I had to declare a major and I picked law enforcement because there was no math involved in the curriculum. So I knew I wouldn't have to take math and that that's ultimately why I chose studying criminal justice. Um, but that guy kind of played a little role in kind of pushing me, pushing me there.
0: So there's no math in the lead up to law enforcement career.
1: I didn't have to take one math class in college.
0: Next time I get pulled over for speeding, I'm going to dispute his understanding of numbers.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what about the the shoulder injury? I kind of skipped that. I kind of had a brain fart and, and moved to a different um, topic. How did you rehab that? Was that surgery? Was it PT? Was it a combination of both?
1: I probably should have done more PT. I didn't do surgery. Um, I just kind of rehabbed it a little bit. And, like I said, not as much as I should have, and I it's caused like shoulder problems now throughout the years. Like my shoulders are shot. Um, I have a torn labrum and a bone spur in one shoulder and the other shoulder, which I would end up dislocating later in life. Um, I have a torn rotator cuff partially. So my shoulders are jacked up, but uh, yeah, the second one was a freak one. So after college I started coaching uh, youth baseball i worked at a baseball facility uh giving lessons and i was coaching teams and it was just the kid threw a ball high and i went and reached up and my shoulder just popped right out so but none of them i got surgery for and i kind of rehabbed all of them half fast to be honest with you
0: did they ever come out during your time in uniform
1: in the academy so when I was in the academy, it didn't pop out while I was like physically in the academy, but it popped out like maybe on a weekend. And I remember I didn't tell anybody about it. I told some of my friends about it in the academy, but I didn't want to say anything. And that day for PT, we like got crushed and had to do jumping jacks and squat thrusts. and we had to jump over like the wall that you have to like jump over in order to pass the academy. And I did all that with one arm. <laughs> like i did my best to try and do a jumping jack without you know throwing my arm up but yeah i ended up doing all that with one arm uh but other than that there were no instance where like it ever dislocated at work or anything like that
0: because i know you can reset it hitting a locker i saw a documentary called lethal weapon
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know i thought about trying to reset the one uh when i was playing uh when i was coaching where i jumped up and it popped out I, because I'm just around like a bunch of little kids, like you know we were at practice. and it, thankfully, a parent came around and uh, he actually popped it back for me and placed right down in there. But as I'm like sitting there and pain, I'm like, do I just
0: try and do something here? <laughs> so you you're obviously talking about the academy then. At what point did you shift from this is i'm I'm just declaring my major to actually realizing that you were enjoying this profession that you found yourself in?
1: Probably the academy, honestly. Um, No, let me rewind. Sorry, not in the academy. So in New Jersey, so my original position in law enforcement was the CO. I was a corrections officer for the county. When you start, there is no academy. You just do like post-training, and then you're thrown onto a block with inmates. Um, I knew that I enjoyed the law enforcement world when I was working as a CO. Uh, and I knew that I would be good at it because I saw that I can talk to people. You know, if you can, I think everybody should start in a jail because if you can talk to an inmate, to a criminal and get their respect, you can do it to anybody, in my opinion. Um, and that's really where I learned to talk to people. That's kind of where you you learn this whole like respect thing. you're not going to be giving respect to everybody. Like you got to earn people's respect. Uh, and that's kind of where I learned everything. And where, when I was working there, although it wasn't long, I did enjoy it. And I knew that I would enjoy my career in law
0: enforcement. I know when I was out in California as a firefighter, certainly the surrounding counties, if you wanted to go in law enforcement, it was it was like a year or a couple of years you had to be in corrections before you went out onto the streets as a law enforcement officer. Yeah, you'll learn a lot
1: about yourself and what kind of cop you're going to be starting inside of a jail. You know, you're, you'll learn quick if you're going to freeze when you're tested. Um, and like I said, the biggest thing is just learning to talk
0: to people. Now, with your perspective, and I'm going to partly load this question because I've, I've had a lot of conversations about this. I've had prison governors from Norway. I've had, um, lawyers that worked on, um, freeing people who are wrongfully convicted, for example. So, the correction system, the, the judicial system, the way we have it at the moment doesn't seem to be the best version of itself. Let's put it that way. Um, and the recidivism rate, I think, you know, reflects that at the moment. With your perspective, firstly, you know, when we're on the outside looking in, as you correct yourself, like not an inmate, a criminal, you know, we, we kind of label people. And obviously, they're in there for a reason. Um, did you have any aha moments of maybe the human beneath the orange suit like the that they weren't all just (laughs) these you know batman villains when you actually got into that profession
1: so i didn't have any like aha moments um but i'm like i've always been a big believer in treat people the way that you want to be treated uh so that's kind of how i went into that job you know just treat people how you want to be treated um and nine times out of ten you're going to get the same respect back uh so there were, like I said, there were no aha moments. But at the same time, if if you have that mentality, at least this is my opinion. If you have that mentality that everybody is a shitbag in a the jail, they're going to make your life hell because you're going to project that, and they're going to know that. And every day you go to work, you're going to hate going to work because they're going to get off on bothering you because they have 24 hours a day to do nothing but kill time.
0: Yeah, well, I think just to take it out of the jail because I do talk about that, you know, quite a bit. I talk as well a lot about our profession, especially fire and EMS, but also law enforcement. When it comes to an addict or a homeless person or a, you know a sex worker, where again we pigeonhole them and like, oh, this bum, what a piece of shit. Instead of, oh, this is a human being. Not what's wrong with you. What happened to you? And when it comes to crimes, there is a victim, so it's not removing the crime. But how did that? once toddler get to the point where they did crime x and now they've ended up behind bars and how how do we take look them as a human some people are beyond repair there's always the extremes but how do we get the rest of the human beings that their mentor instead of maybe a friend that they used to lift weights with that sent them in the law enforcement route it was someone who used to sling dope and sent them in the gang route instead how do we corral those younger people and send them into a positive way
1: I think it's just, it's building relationships with people and building rapport with people. You know, like you go back to the question of, you know, when you're on the street and dealing with, especially like drug acts and stuff like that. Um, so part of my career, I worked in warrants where we did a lot of uh, post-conviction warrants. So we did a ton of work in drug court, which is, uh, so it's a, it's a sentence where you need to complete X, Y, Z, but everybody is a drug offender, right? So when people would relapse or run away from programs or stuff like that, we would get a warrant and we would go pick them up. And the guy I worked with, like, we did a lot of rapport building and talking with these people and, you know, figuring out like, Hey, like, how did you get here? You know what I mean? Like not only just to like kill time while we're bringing them to the jail, because sometimes we were going far away. Um, But just to make them feel like they're a real person, you know what I mean? Like the, just because, like I said, somebody has a, a drug problem or something like that, that doesn't mean that's who they are or you know that they're a bad person. It means they've made bad decisions, and I can personally attest to that.
0: <laughs> well, with all these conversations, just one more thing before we transition back to law enforcement. Did you notice any common denominators of origin stories, again, that sent people into addiction?
1: So up in Jersey, like heroin is like huge, right? Um just like it is everywhere else. Uh, and like the biggest one was, you know, how'd you get in shooting dope? And most of these stores were the same. I got hurt. I got prescribed painkillers. I got prescribed an ungodly, stupid dosage of painkillers. And then they cut me off and I got sick for a few days. and I didn't want to be sick. So I went and got more painkillers. And then I found out heroin and fake painkillers are a lot cheaper. So why would I keep buying Oxycontin, when I can go buy heroin, and then next thing you know, you're shooting it.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I mean, that's part of the the you know the story. The other part, obviously, is there's a lot of people that take painkillers that take them for two weeks and their prescription's done. They're like, okay, I'm done with painkillers, you know. So there's obviously there's the trauma side as well. But you add those two together, and Dope Sick, yeah. if you've seen that, was a beautifully portrayed story of how Oxycontin specifically was so. um unethically put onto the medical community and and created so much addiction and so much death and you know they basically escaped any kind of um justice whatsoever the company behind it
1: yeah and you said it too like yeah there's the like the pills the abuse that lead up to you know the heroin usage and everything like that but somewhere along the lines there's going to be trauma somewhere
0: absolutely so you're in prison i mean you're you're working in a prison should i say you're in corrections um walk me through that transition into the law enforcement side and and your initial training as well when it comes to fitness and defensive tactics
1: so i knew when i got into law enforcement i started working in jail that i didn't want to spend my whole career inside of the jail um so i kept testing and eventually i got a letter for the same department actually so the jail and the like, law enforcement bureau of the sheriff's office that I work for are run by the same, like I said, the same department. There's just two entities to it. So I got certified for like the upfront law enforcement side of it, uh, took that, ran, went to the academy. Um, in the academy, the defensive tactics training and the PT training, I mean, the PT training, is, it's all like calisthenics and stuff like that um, and a ton of running. Uh, and then the defensive tactics training is not a lot like we had like a week, maybe two weeks of defensive tactics training, all of which you don't retain any of it. You know, um, if you want to really take defensive tactics training seriously, like you need to go out and do it on your own. Uh, and I did after the academy for a little bit, but then life just got in the way and got too busy. Um, but I've always been into fitness. Um I've always weight lifted right after high school is really when I got serious about lifting uh, when I was in college. And it's just kind of transitioned with me ever since.
0: So you come out of the academy. What's your first impression of the you know, the, the law enforcement profession as you see it now boots on the ground? And how did that contrast to that role you had as a CEO?
1: So I started working in courts. So the sheriff's office Um, we're responsible for the superior courthouses of the counties. Um, and that's where I started and I immediately regretted my decision of leaving the jail because I felt like I didn't have a purpose. Like I was useless. Like I just did six months in a police academy to stand here next to a judge just in case something happens. Like this isn't, this isn't law enforcement. This isn't police work. This sucks. Um, I, I, there was actually a time where I tried to transfer back to the jail. Uh, that's how, that's how, that's how shitty it was for me. You know, people were like, you're going to try and go back and work in a jail. And I'm like, yeah, but, but here you have straight days and of weekends off and seven to three there. You could work midnight. you know, shift changes, everything like that. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But like, there, there, I felt purpose over there. I felt like I was more useful um didn't happen i ended up staying where i was uh i eventually i'm able to get into a unit that i wanted to get into that warrants that i was talking about um and that's where like good enjoying work started happening
0: again and what about the perspective so you'd seen the kind of uh the end point of someone's you know journey through the legal system in the jail and obviously ultimately prison what about where you were standing now? What was the what was the contrast for you specifically?
1: So the biggest thing I learned is people won't change, especially with substance use, unless they've hit a rock bottom. And it's funny when you talk to people like on the streets who are actively using one, they'll always say, like, I thought this was my rock bottom, but apparently it's not because here I am again. Um, and everybody's rock bottom is different. Right, like, and a one overdose could be someone's rock bottom, and they're like, Oh my god, I need to get my life together. I don't want to, I'm tired of going to jail, right? Um, or seven might not be someone's, and then they're dead. So, that's really th- the biggest thing. Mm-hmm.
0: So as you progress through, what were some of the career calls that you had? I mean, as you said, you, you're you're um, issuing warrants or serving warrants um, as you progress through your law enforcement. When it comes to some of the, the trauma that we begin to be exposed to, and it could obviously include time and corrections as well, what were some of those calls that you were adding to your encyclopedia?
1: So on the street, there was like nothing major, but... Again, like, as a human being, like, you're really not supposed to be, like, when you look into your brain and your mind and everything like that and how your body reacts, like, you're not built to pull guns on people. Um The use of forces and stuff like that. You're not, you know, made to, like, be berated to have people say, fuck you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to rape your children, like, all this, you know, the things like cops and CEOs here. You're not built to hear all that kind of stuff. Like, you're not supposed to. Um I had an attempted suicide as a CEO, um, where I had to use my little rescue tool. We cut them down. Um, my first ever use of force, I remember pretty vividly, um, which was kind of like a test to me to see if like how I'd react. Um, and I reacted, we did what we had to do, whatever. Uh, but it's funny, like learning that, like later on, like, Hey, that was a test to see like if you were okay or not. Um. So yeah, that's that was it. You know, it's funny because I actually one of the positions that I wanted to try and do was either uh crime scene or SWAT, our search team. And uh one of the questions that I got asked in an interview was how do you think you'd react to seeing a dead body, like a dead baby? uh my answer was like, I don't know. Like okay. how do you know that? You Know what I mean? Like I can't tell you how I'm gonna react. I've literally no idea. I've never seen that baby before, you know. So
0: it's a stupid question. <laughs> it really not, is if you think about how, it. Like how are you gonna st- I don't know how I'm gonna react. Yeah, and you might react perfectly on one day, and then you know, two years right later you've had a newborn. Action. Yeah, and now you're you're a mess. Yep. So well, speaking of that, so you you know, you've gone through this journey so far. You yourself, you know, start to go down a kind of roller coaster with your own mental health as well. What was the first kind of uh, decline that you can see now looking back?
1: I found it okay to start drinking during the week. So when I was working as a CEO, like your days off and you're new, like they sucked They're like Tuesday, Wednesday. So like those were like starting to be my drinking days, you know, um, I had to work on the weekends, work overtime, whatever it was. So I, found a group of guys who I could hang out with who, from work and we all went out and we drank during the week and then we went to work. Uh, our days off came and then the same thing happened. So my drinking like started during the week um, and the fact that I was living kind of far um, from where I worked. So like when I would go out, I would go out for a while. We'd drink for a while. Um, so that didn't help either.
0: So then it's, you're noticing that you're drinking on different days or extra days you know where does that take you
1: uh on a roller coaster (laughs) um it takes me to binge drinking is really like what was going on like when eventually when the drinking looking back became a problem is i would just go into these binges where i would drink for you know two three four five days after work or whatever it was uh, and then drive home and then i do the same thing over again. And then something like in my life would happen and I would stop drinking. I would stop going out. Uh, and then I would be good for a while. Everything would be status quo. And then the same thing would happen again. I'd go out and I would get after it and I would go back and hang out with the same guys that I was like, all right, I need to stop hanging out from them. Like this is getting kind of wild now. Um, but then I would just go back out and hang out with them. I My drinking was like, I describe it like a bad ex-girlfriend. Like she's toxic. You guys don't get along together. She's not good for you. But for whatever reason, whenever she calls you or texts you, you answer and you let her back in. And that was like my relationship with
0: drinking. So you're having these moments of you know, sobriety and then, and then you're kind of lapsing again. Again, where, do, where does that lead you from there?
1: Well, into <clears throat> getting in trouble. Um, with that drinking... Came drug use as well. Um, when you drink a lot with guys, you realize that no one has to pee as often as some people do. Like there's other reasons why they're going to the bathroom.
0: In twos, uh, and they're not girls.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with hands underneath stalls or over the stalls, you know. <laughs> uh, so they were doing cocaine. Uh, I didn't like cocaine. I'm a pretty wiry, upbeat guy, energy guy myself uh, without the cocaine, Uh, but I was messing around with painkillers. Um, So I would do painkillers sometimes when we would go out and drink. Um, And bad off duty incidents. Um, I had what I described Superman syndrome, where when you're drinking and even like when I wasn't drinking back then, like you think you're invincible and uh, no one was ever going to take my keys when I was out drinking. So I was going to drive home on my own. I'm a big boy. I can do it myself. Uh, And I ended up getting pulled over a few times. And gradually, each incident got worse and worse and worse. Uh, Like the first one was like your pretty typical, hey, you tin him. I'm a cop. I'm drunk. Like, can you do something? And he ends up driving me home. Um, The home life after that wasn't so great, but I got away from getting in trouble. Um, and that kind of, as I found out and I look back, it kind of fuels the fire of I'm going to get away with this. You know what I mean? Um, because I continued to drink and drive. Not thinking that there are ever going to be any real consequences, even though like you know there, there could be. Especially ones that you're not going to be able to walk away from when you hit somebody and you kill Johnny and his mom in a car um and you walk away scot-free which is for whatever reason always happens absolutely so but again like superman says, i never thought that that would happen to me you know and i just push those thoughts away and try not to think about them um but eventually they keep drinking i keep going out and the cycle continues get pulled over again and for whatever reason, just something inside me didn't sit well with the situation. And I was like a total asshole to these guys when all they wanted to do was just help me out and make sure that I was okay. And that I would get home. Okay. Like offering to drive me home. And I was just such a dick to them. You know what I mean? Like it felt like I was better than them for whatever reason. Um, and they end up eventually being able to get me in a car, but after that incident, I find out that I have no professional courtesy in that town anymore. Mind you, that's my hometown that I grew up in, by the way. Um, and again, like you'd think like that's a pretty big kick in the dick. I felt pretty bad about that, but I got away with it. And that adds more food to the fire and it just continues. Um, and they would have keep continuing. I had one more bad one where trying tried to fight like six cops who again were literally just trying to help me out and do what they thought was the right thing and just make sure I was okay and get me home safe. And I was just a total dick to them. Um, and this one resulted in an IA from work. Uh, there was the first one officially that work found out about where, uh, I was drinking and driving and being an an asshole, even though I know they knew about the other ones, nothing stays private in law enforcement. It's like a high school in an apartment. Um, So that resulted in an IA there. Uh, I mean, him. took five days suspension on unpaid and got a nice ass ripping from admin over that.
0: Well, that brings up a really important point. There is some blind loyalty when it comes to police, fire, EMS, you know, when this happens. And I know, for example, firefighters that all of a sudden are riding a bike to work. You know, no one's saying why they're riding a bike to work. They're not allowed to drive the engine anymore for a period of time. And it's such a double-edged sword because now with this lens, this understanding that I have, you know, seven years into this podcast, for example, you realize whether you're wearing uniform or not, that alcoholism is obviously, as we discussed, you know, trauma that that particular person has chosen alcohol to fill the void, you know. So is it is it understandable? Yes. Is it excusable when they wipe out a family in a minivan? Absolutely not. So it's this dichotomy. It's this double-edged sword. And so sometimes we do more worse than good by protecting our own because now that person isn't forced to have that intervention to to face it. And, uh, you know, I've got a a family member who um, was grieving deeply after um, their loved one took their own life, um, ended up getting a DUI. And that was actually the, the, the pivotal point where they were able to start dealing with their grief and trauma and ultimately their sobriety as well. So talk to me about that again with this perspective that you have now the theory of brushing these under a rug we don't want to just immediately terminate someone because this is someone who's in crisis but at the same time if we protect them and sweep it under the rug we're not addressing the problem either
1: right and it's like DUIs were a common thing in my department too like, we, between like the jail and the upfront side like we they were averaging like a DUI or two a year when I was my time there um but So when I was working, you couldn't pay me to write a cop. I would have never wrote a cop for literally anything unless he killed somebody in front of me or, you know, absolutely, absolutely had to. But like the UIs and stuff like that, I would have let anybody go all day. Um, But looking back at it, there needs to be something done. Like the days of just picking somebody up or pulling them over and driving them home or having their friend or wife, whatever, come get them. Like they should be long gone by now. Um, because if you're a cop and you don't realize that alcoholism and substance abuse is an issue in this profession, you're an idiot to be quite frank. So by letting just everybody get away with everything, you're only adding to the problem. And whether that be like a call to their PBA rep, you know, their department, whatever it is, and they can handle it, you know, through the department, whatever. But I, I definitely think like those days of, Hey buddy, you're a cop. We have the same profession. You're good. Should be done. And Obviously, I don't know if they are. I'm not a cop anymore. I have no idea. But the use of body cams uh, has probably put somewhat of a stop to that, I would think. But again, like a DUI is a traffic infringement in New Jersey. Like it's, you can use your discretion. You don't have to act on it. So I'm sure guys are still getting away with murder, you know. Um, but they definitely shouldn't be because, like I said, you're adding fuel to that fire, and you're you're not helping. You think you are in the moment, and the guy that gets pulled over is. In, Extremely appreciative because number one, he's not in trouble. And number two, he probably realized that he just avoided having to address some things that he has to address that he knows he does. Um, And that was kind of with me too, because it was funny. When I went through my IA, like that, the last time when I was working, when I got into an off duty incident, I didn't remember any of it. So I found out, like through other people, exactly what happened. And in my IA, they would show me like still shots from their cameras of like everything. And they would read off what I was reading, what I was saying to these cops. Uh, and she, they're just like, do you remember saying this, this, this? And the whole town was sitting there like, no, 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 no. But I'm hearing it and I'm like, oh, shit, you know what I mean? So I end up eventually getting pulled over or pulled into my admin office. And as I'm going in there, I'm like, I wonder if they're going to like make me go get help. Because after this incident, like I contemplated trying to get some help. Um, I ended up not, but, and I got called in like months later after it. So again, like I'm getting called in and I'm like, I wonder if they're going to make me go to rehab because of everything. Cause I was still drinking after that. And like people in admin knew that I was still drinking, but I just got like ripped on. They just yelled at me and whatever braided me. And I left that meeting and I was like, relieved because i was like oh they didn't make me like go face anything here they just yelled at me like i got thick skin like i don't care go ahead yell at me all you want just don't make me try and get help you know uh and then like i look back and i'm like how do you not ask somebody like how do you not even ask the question of are you okay like why why did this happen you know
0: yeah well, it's it's the question I quoted a minute ago. You know, we for so long we have say, "What's wrong with you?" to the addict, to the you know DUI, to whatever, instead of what happened to you. And what happened to you is a very compassionate, kind way of looking at it. Now, it doesn't excuse the thing that's now. There's there's going to be a vi- victim or a potential victim if you're pulled over the DUI without hurting anyone, but it, that act still needs to be punitive. However, trying to get to the root cause of why did you even get to that place? Why is it that? Sandra and Steven can drive, you know, all day long, you know, stone cold sober, but, you know, person X is high on drugs or on alcohol. They're both people, but one has got, like you said, unaddressed trauma. And so if you're not holding us accountable, but also bringing a solution to the same conversation, so for example, let's say you are law enforcement and you do get pulled over and you have a DUI or a firefighter. Taking that person's job away is only going to compound the problem even more. And they may even lead to, you know, death by overdose, suicide, you know, whatever, or end up wiping out, you know, a family because you haven't done anything about it. You just cut ties and you washed your hands of that person that's sworn to be a part of your team, you know, till they retire. So this is, I think, the conversation. It's not about, you know, hunting down every cop you can pull over to see if they got a DUI. But when you come across that, you have a responsibility to report, but hopefully you have a compassionate addiction policy in your department and mental health policy we're like okay well you can't be behind the wheel for x amount of months but here's what we're going to do the same way as if you fuck up your back and you've got to have you know rehab and all this stuff cairo it's the same with this we're not going to take your job away however there are punitive steps that you're going to have to achieve and succeed before you can return to work
1: right and with that comes should come options too because like I said, like when I had kind of toyed with the idea of getting some help, like I was only given one option through my PBA, and it was to go to Florida, go to, in, go to inpatient, go to Florida, go down there for 30 days, whatever. And I asked the question like, well, is there anything like up here that maybe I can look into? No, go to Florida. Um, and now that I'm involved, like in the first responder, like substance abuse world and you know, I've been involved in trying to get guys some help and stuff like that. Like there are a ton of resources around in New Jersey that I could have been given instead of just being told to go to one specific place. And looking back like that, that's one thing that kind of chaps my ass about, you know, some of the situations. And mind you, like I did everything on my own. I take responsibility. No one forced me to do anything like that. And I chose not to get any help until my career ended. Um but why wasn't I told that there was a first responder friendly in outpatient 20 minutes from where I live? You know, it's not hard, um, but usually everything comes down to money um, because when I had spoken to them, like they were like, I just like I got a bad vibe from the people down there. Like I was just like a, a number and a dollar sign to them because I was just instantly told, "Well, will just come down here because I reached out to them again later when I got jammed up. I ended up getting suspended uh, from work um, along with a bunch of other people, like maybe six, seven, eight people. Um, Through like the grapevine and, you know, other things that happened, uh, they found out that we were using drugs. Uh, So we all end up getting suspended or whatever. And I'm like trying to figure out like, how do I, Save my job, number one. How do I, you know, manage everything? Um, and I thought like maybe saving my job, maybe I'll just go down to Florida and maybe try and get the help. Uh, but I really didn't really want it number one at that time when I called. And number two, like I said, I got like just like a bad like vibe of like, hey, just come down here. Because one of the first things they said to me is we've never had anybody lose their job who comes down to our facility which shows me immediately, you don't care about what I actually have going on. You just want me down there for a number of purpose. You know what I mean? Uh, So I think like you got to have options for people. And now there are more of that. um, Like every department in New Jersey should have what's called a resiliency officer where they can go to these guys, no questions asked uh, and say, Hey, I need some help. What do you have for me? There's more resources that they're given now. Uh, and you also can go to any resiliency officer in the state for help. You don't need just need to go to your department guy, which is good because not everyone is always going to trust that guy. Obviously, um, so it's gotten better uh, because I, I know guys who do this for their full time day job where they help guys get into you know rehabs uh i've driven a guy myself to rehab um i got a call from a resiliency officer guy he wanted me to come talk to a guy tell him what i went through and hopefully be able to help him and and next day i end up driving this guy to rehab so there are more resources out there however we all know that not everybody's using them and they're just doing half-ass work
0: one observation i've had because i end up working for four different departments that's four different hiring you know procedures um and there was a common denominator one was the polygraph and three of the four and when i researched for the very first time i was shit in my pants i'm like i've you know tried some things in the past and i'm a very honest person and i actually try, oh. i tried being honest in the very first app i ever put in and they screwed it up and threw it in my face and said you'll never work here i was like okay so i so i have to lie got it understood so then you know polygraph comes up and i've just done some stuff that makes you dance a lot hug a lot of people but you know is on a certain schedule um in another country by the way um but anyway so i realized well firstly the polygraphs bullshit because i lied my way through three of them and it's not like a beat chest wow that's amazing it's just it's not science it's bullshit it's junk science and it's really just to, to freak you out and get you to confess then we have what what they call i think it's the minnesota personality test which is the only test they give us and since i've been you know so lucky to talk to a lot of people in psychology and psychiatry they're like that is never meant to be a standalone test it's for a a gamut of tests if you're doing forensic psychology so it's bullshit as well so what i've you know suggested to people is take the money you waste on those two tests you've done a background you've done a physical test you've done a written test now take that money and give people six counseling sessions in that first six months or so that you hire them Now, in your case, maybe there's not a lot that they brought into the job. There's other people I've had on here that were molested and all kinds of shit before they ever became, you know, a responder or a military member. And so now you have the opportunity to start dealing with stuff at the front door. You've made the mental health conversation completely normal from day one. And you've got a go-to person, you know, whoever you spoke to those, that's, that's, you pick up the phone, Steve, Sandra, you know, here's what I'm going through. Can I come see you? So this is, I think, you know, this is the future. The fact that you come in and you do a bunch of push-ups in the academy and get a badge and be like, all right, go arrest some people. you know, Of course, you're setting yourself up for failure. And this is why we have, on top of the fact that, for example, the firefighter work week is insane. But that aside, we don't make mental health normal. And now the conversation is, oh, we've got to get rid of the stigma. Yeah, but what are we going to do about it? Your phone number on the pin board is bullshit. We actually need to make this part of the onboarding for all these professions so it's as normal as pt and roll call
1: so that's an interesting point that you bring up because if you have pre-existing trauma prior to working in a career like this where you're going to be exposed to traumatic experiences it's almost guaranteed that it's going to trigger something um and you're going to look for ways to cope with it um and so if you do that you're almost you're addressing that trauma like you said prior and guys might not be able to work right away, to be honest with you, with that. Like, that might be a turnoff. But at the same time, like, you're going to be able to save your career in the long run or save yourself because you need these things addressed. Because if you don't, like, those doors are going to open eventually. And if you're not prepared for them to be open, which most of the time you're not, you're going to find ways to cope. And usually they're unhealthy ways, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, you know, the list goes on and on. Um so that's interesting. I've never actually heard anybody bring that up. It's actually really interesting. Um and I like it too. Especially <laughs> since I'm gonna be a future therapist. Great work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the thing is, you know, I've talked about this a lot. The 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 health of the men and women that serve in your department or your city or your county wearing uniform, you'd think that would be enough to motivate you to create a great environment. And let me be very clear. There's some people that should never be in this profession, and we need to weed them out too. But um, sadly, that isn't enough for a lot of you know employers. So the other side is the budget. And with this particular idea, you take the money you're wasting on those two things—the polygraph and the 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 psych test—and you simply just reallocate it to an onboarding counseling session instead. Because if you haven't been able to eliminate someone by the all the tests that you've done. And the background check, then, you know, I mean, the polygraph, the, the psych, t- I mean, they're, I know great yeah. candidates that were excluded because of those and they didn't do anything wrong and they had a clean yeah. sheet, you know, so.
1: This is a joke. The psych isn't looking for trauma. It's looking to hear an answer of what you're going to say, you know, it doesn't actually dig to see if there is trauma there. And no one is going to admit to anything in their psych because they're going to fear that they're going to be psyched out and not get a job, obviously. Um, so there's no trust there either. And the whole, you know, you talked about, like, breaking the stigma. Um, That's, like, I believe, and from what I kind of see now, the most people who want to break that stigma are the people who have gone through some shit, who have had bad experiences, substance abuse, you know, whatever, themselves. And what they realize when they go through everything is that they're not alone, that there were a ton of other guys out there who felt the same way as them, who have the same suicidal thoughts, who are depressed as them, who you know, had some shitty things happen to them on the job or growing up. And you realize once you start working on yourself, um, other guys have gone through the same shit, something similar, and that you're not as alone as you thought. And what happens is, especially like in AA, I don't run, I don't use AA as like my base for my recovery program. But one of the things is like they encourage like part of the recovery is to share your experience, strength, and hope. Um, And that's what these guys do who go through some shit is they start sharing uh, and they want to break that stigma. But how many other people who have never who don't have a substance abuse problem, uh, who think that they're perfect or who have an issue and they don't think they have an issue, which I'm sure there's obviously a lot of guys as well, care about breaking that stigma, too. Or how much does admin really care about breaking that stigma, you know? I don't think as much as the guy who has gone through some shit, who was able to correct himself, who's living a healthy, sober life now, I think he cares more about breaking the stigma than the guy who it doesn't affect. You know what I mean? And really, that's where like the problem is: is. Is the stigma ever going to be broken? I don't know. But more people need to care about the mental health of others in order for that to happen.
0: Well, over and over and over again, I hear people who you know, have been through this journey, and I'm sure you probably had this too, come out the other end, you know, and when they were deep in that journey, we're all looking around, you know, again, during roll call or line up in the fire service or at a hospital, whatever it is, and you're like, everyone else is fine. What the fuck is wrong with me? I'm alone. I'm, I'm a pussy, you know. And then, ironically, we're all so damn good at putting on the mask that everyone else is thinking the same thing. So, I mean, not everyone. People have good days and bad days, but... You then have this person within your group who goes through this journey, comes out the other end, and over and over and over again, they're like, dude, they came out of the woodwork. Hey, can I can I have a word with you a sec? Because you finally had the courage to be vulnerable and, you know, come out the other side, like give hope to people. Like you're not just going to spiral downward until you end up in a coffin. There is a way out that you realize actually how many people are struggling. So that's what's so so sad is there's this facade of doing fine, but behind scenes and i would argue even like city and council if you're a, if you're a council member of a county and you know that there's all these firefighters suicides and it doesn't bother you i would say you've probably got a mental health issue too that you need to address because it should bother you
1: absolutely and like that was my mindset as well as my friends like i'll never speak to anybody you know i don't need to speak to a therapist there was a point where i came home I hammered one day and my girlfriend is just on the couch, bawling her eyes out, crying, like literally begging me, like, you have a problem. Like, please just get help. And I look her dead in the eyes and I go, fuck you. I'm never going to talk to anybody. And that was it. And that that was my mentality until like I started therapy. Um, and my first experience with therapy, like wasn't great either. Uh, the first therapist I saw, she sucked. Um, I didn't like her. We didn't click well. We didn't have a therapeutic rapport relationship uh and i stopped seeing her so i had like went through you know a few weeks where i didn't have a therapist i was trying to figure things out on my own and i eventually find the therapist who i see now who i think is aces um and now i'm like a huge you know therapy advocate i think fucking everybody should see a therapist like what better way to get everything off your chest than to go talk to somebody who's going to be completely unbiased about you know things you know like what do you have to hide from somebody who you feel isn't going to judge you nothing And that's where work starts happening, when you can be honest with somebody and be honest with yourself as well.
0: How did you find the first therapist? Was it through the EAP program or was it another route?
1: No. So my buddy um, at one point who wasn't a cop uh, saw a therapist. Uh, I asked how he liked her. He said she liked her. So I call her. I have a consult with her. But one of the first things I ask her is like, do you have experience with first responders with cops? Uh, And she's like, yeah, I work with a ton of cops. I understand, you know, the you know, the blue community and, you know, whatever. So, all right, let me give you a shot. But like, as I'm like talking and there's certain things that I'm talking about, kind of like realize like, you don't really understand what the hell I'm saying. Like, I don't think you really get the first responder world, actually. I think you just lied. Uh, so I stopped seeing her. And then the therapist that I see now is referred to by actually one of the guys I got jammed up with. Um, he referred me over to her. So I started seeing her. Uh, and like I said, like she was aces.
0: I've heard so many EAP horror stories. It doesn't have to be through EAP. And also, this is something that someone brought up very recently, actually, that now, because it's becoming a demand, a lot of counselors are putting first responders on their list of specialties. And, you know, you see some of them, everything from family to divorce to, you know, you're like, well, how the hell, you know, how are you an expert on everything, you know? So, yeah. But that culturally competent cl- clinician that truly understands the way we talk, the way we work, what we see the shifts, et cetera, et cetera, um, is invaluable. And I've, and it's tragic because I've heard stories of you know counselors bursting into tears, counselors telling the person to get out they can't help them. And what haunts me is, okay, those are the people that survived to tell that tale. They, they had, luckily, the fortitude to still stay around long enough to find someone who was right or find psychedelics or equine therapy or whatever the thing was. But how many people have we lost because they went there in crisis or near crisis and someone who they trusted told them, I can't help you. You're crazy. Stop telling me these horrible things. And then they went and stuck a gun in their mouth.
1: Yeah. And there's, there's a couple of ways to like, to get some credit and like be able to call yourself, like, or, or, you know, I don't want to say expert, but you know, specialize in first responders, whatever you want to say. Um, And that's number one through education Um, because you need to understand trauma PTSD, substance abuse, all that kind of stuff you need to understand, right? Um, And there's also experience. And that doesn't have to come firsthand. That could just come through the education and then you start getting experience by working with first responders. And that work shouldn't just be through counseling sessions. Like you need to really go out and try and figure out like what is the first responder community really about? You know, Um, and then the other way is, been there done that you've been in that world you were a cop firefighter first responder or whatever and you know you understand it which is kind of why like i went into the field that i'm in now so i'm currently in grad school right now uh for clinical mental health like i want to go and i want to be able to help the guys i want to be able to help who i was four years ago um so you know I you've been there you've done that you have your street credit whatever it is um and hopefully that Allows people to be able to trust you a little bit more because in therapy, like it's all about trust. You have to trust the person you're talking to. You have to trust that they really understand or know about what you've been through and can relate. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's a that's a long term goal there.
0: So you talked about being resistant to the Florida um, uh, facility. You, you again didn't have a, a good rapport, a good success with that. You also talked about the the pills. So, kind of walk us through the rest of that roller coaster before you you began to get your upswing. What was the lowest point?
1: Um, getting married and then getting arrested two weeks later isn't like the best way to start your marriage off. I don't really recommend that to anybody. Uh, so that wasn't fun to go through. Uh, I also didn't handle, I didn't deal with this like the best way in terms of like family. Um I tricked myself for a long time thinking I might be able to to get out of what I you know out of what I had got, got myself into. Um yeah. but in the back of my mind like I knew there was no shot really. So I had told my girl at the time that I gave her pieces of what I thought might happen, you know. Um and this came after we got married. Um and I didn't realize I was really totally screwed until I had a meeting with the prosecutor's office and they throw a packet of evidence and I go through it and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm screwed. So, you know, I have that meeting and I end up, you know, I tell her everything like it's, it isn't going to be good. Um, and the only person I had told in my family was my dad. So when I get jammed up um, and I get married, my parents are living in Texas. That's where my sister is as well. Uh, my sister moved out there with her husband a while ago. And then my parents, you know, ended up going out there with grand- for their grandkids or whatever. So. I get married, and I'm telling my dad, I'm like, I need you to come. And this is height of COVID, by the way. I got my initial wedding got canceled May of 2020. COVID happens. Um, she's pregnant at the time, so we're like, we want to do something before you know we have a baby. So we have a mini COVID wedding, very small wedding, like 30 people or whatever. But I'm telling my dad, I want to tell my parents, I want to tell my dad, closer to my dad than I am my mom. So I want to tell my dad, and I'm like, I need you to come here. And he's like, well, it's COVID, whatever. And I'm like, no, like I need, I need you here, you know. So he ends up flying out for the wedding and everything. And I tell him like the truth. I'm like, I got into a lot of trouble. I'm like, I drank too much. I was doing drugs, and I'm gonna lose my career. And the first thing he asked me, I'll never forget this. And I've never told this story, but he looks me dead in the eyes and he's like, "Are you okay?" This is the best response you could possibly give as a father after i just tell you hey i just fucked my career up i drink too much and i do drugs by the way and he's just like are you okay and i'm like yeah like you know i'm working on things i have a therapist now you know i'm good right now and he's like all right just make sure you always come to me first you know whatever says all the right things that you need to say as a father um and i don't tell anybody else either though (laughs) so i don't I keep everything a secret. I didn't tell my sister until the day that I was in the newspaper. I didn't tell my mom until the day before I was in the newspaper. so all this you know secrets from everybody I had like a a lot of mending to do relationship wise um so that sucked. I had told my friends and all my friends, all my real friends, I should say were totally supportive, totally cool about it. asked if I need anything, you know um which was good but as far as like the work away from like the relationships, like the personal work. So I start seeing a therapist and she turns me on to resources that I wanted to hear seven, eight, nine months ago. And the first one was uh, an AA program for first responders called bottles and badges. Now, again, this is all zoom height of zoom, or uh, I'm sorry, this is COVID like the height of COVID. So the first meeting I go to, I'm on zoom uh, and I go there and I remember I have a a glass of wine behind the computer because I'm like so nervous uh i go through the meeting i hear guys tell their story i hear people say how they can relate to what this guy went through and i could also relate to the guy who told the story so i don't tr- end up drinking the glass of wine right my first meeting was the day before i plead guilty and lose my career and everything you know all was done after i plead guilty I drink, but I don't get hammered. I literally, I just go to one of my friends' house and I have two beers and that was it. Done. Didn't drink the rest of the day. Um, I really believe the reason why I didn't get hammered and really let out as much steam as I wanted to is because I went to that meeting. Um, Because I had guys checking up on me who I had literally just met one day ago. Checking up on me the next day, asking me if I was okay. Because I had shared that, you know whatever. Like, Hey guys, I'm not going to be a cop anymore. I'm not gonna be a first responder. You know, this is what happened. And everybody was totally cool and totally supportive. The next day, Thursday, I go out with one of my got my friends who I worked with and we pour a shot of Jameson and a blue moon, which was like my go-to. And I take my shot and I'm looking at my blue moon. Might've been the other way around. I forget, but whatever it was, I'm like, I'm done drinking. And that was my last drink. Uh, I continue with the bottles and badges meetings. I go every week um, and I start looking into other resources, right? Especially when my sentencing came up. So I have my therapist now who I see at least once a week. I'm going to these bottles and and badges meetings. (laughs) Things are getting better in my life as I'm getting sober, but now I have to face the whole uncomfortable situation of being sentenced i'm going to be back in the newspaper again it's going to trigger things from relationships that were shit and i'm having to work on now so you know i asked my therapist i'm like i need some more help uh and she turns me on to a guy named frank who was running a nonprofit, who i am now working with uh called reps responders uh so i looked them up on instagram i was following their account at the time Probably just thought that they are a regular, you know, first responder cop fitness account uh, and didn't ever give it much attention until I actually looked at what they were doing. So I DM them and I'm like, hey, man, this is what's going on. Like, I was a cop, I'm not anymore. I was drinking too much, sober now, but got some shit going on. Like, I'm, you know, can I start coming to your meetings? Because they were running meetings twice a week. And he's like, absolutely. He's like, we'll just act like you're retired early. He's like, you're good. So I start going to these meetings and I start talking with Frank. And I just realized more that I wasn't alone. Uh, And I start using the people, especially in reps, as my support network. Uh, So as I start going to reps and I'm going to the meetings and I start showing up to the events that they're doing, um, I start thinking what is going on at rest responders is really cool and really needed putting together mental health and physical health to me is like a no brainer. You know um, you can't just focus on one and ignore the other. I don't think it's going to work. I think you have to care about them both and put some work into both. And that's exactly what reps is doing and what we do do. Uh, and I just, I start going to the events. I start being supportive. I'm going to every meeting me and Frank develop a good relationship. And, you know, one day I just asked him, I'm like, I want to help, you know, like I, I I see what we're doing here. I want guys to know that they're not going to be alone. You know, like I want to help these guys too. Uh, And Frank brings me on and, you know, I start being able to help guys. I've become, you know, a peer support for people when people are reaching out who need somebody to talk to. And I, through this, like I've gained like lifelong friends as well. You know, guys who've reached out to reps and needed some help. And, you know, Frank asked me to call them. And next thing I know, like I'm talking to a guy for an hour initially, but now like we're texting, we're DMing, like we're going, we're meeting away from like these reps meetings. We're going to get workouts in, you know, we're going to eat after like it's, it's Pierce. It's the true definition in my mind of peer support. Of not just making a phone call to somebody, but staying connected, you know, meeting in person, going out, mm-hmm. having laughs with people, forgetting about the suck, you know, and that's what we try and do at Reps is try and get people to forget about the suck. Um, And then from there, all of those things that I mentioned, I'm, I still do. You know, the meetings are tough now because um, just personal life, like, I have a kid just, I work full time. I'm in grad school full time. I, you know, a lot of these meetings are that I like to do are on zoom. So it's just tough to get to them all, but like, that's something I should be making them a priority. Now that I say this out loud. (laughs) um, (laughs) You're
0: you're welcome. (laughs) That'd be a hundred bucks, please.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, But they're, they're all there. You know what I mean? And they're always going to be there, which is good. But so that's, that is like my support system and they've all been incredibly valuable and helpful throughout i've got this october will be 3 years of sobriety um with knock on wood no relapses and just taking it one day at a time but i think especially like reps there needs to be like more of it where you're open about what you go through like i said like in order to break stigma people need to be open and vulnerable You know, because sharing your story sucks. You know, like I remember the first time I I told my story, I was okay. And obviously, as like time goes on, like the story evolves, right? So like the first time I told my story is completely different to how I speak about it now, because there's just suck in the beginning. You know, like there's, there's no good, you know, it's like, hey, I'm 90 days sober, but 90 days ago, I was in the newspaper for, you know, doing drugs. And now everybody thinks I'm a shipper, you know? So it's cool to see how the story evolves and things get better and better. Like they say, like your life gets drastically better when you become sober. Well, that, that's been the case for me, um, and I'm not going it, to hopefully it continues. But it, you just you need to be vulnerable, like I said. You need to be able to share your story and realize that, like sometimes it will be triggering. Uh, because there were times where I, I was telling my story too much. Because I felt like I need to, everybody's got to hear that, like, you're not alone and you can get out there and, you know, ask for help. It's okay. And I, I was, like, triggering the fuck out of myself. You know, like, I remember, like, there were times where, like, I would go and I would tell my story and I'd put on the, the face of, like, everything's good inside. And I'd go to my car and I'd start fucking crying because I'm bringing up the fact that I pissed away, like, a pretty good career. I hurt a lot of people. You know, like, I hurt my family. I hurt my friend. Like, you know, I was just triggering myself um and all these things like just come with the reminder of like the work is never done you know like every life is a process you know just because you figure out one issue you know i figure out how to not drink well now i need to figure out ways to fill the void of like adrenaline because that's what drinking gave me like drinking gave me a big adrenaline rush so like now i'm working on well how do i fill that void of adrenaline with something that's healthy too. You know, so there's always, like I'm saying, there's always work to be done. There's always going to be issues. Um, but having that support system is the biggest thing by far.
0: I had a guest on the show, Johan Hari, who I talk about a lot because his, uh, his work is amazing. But he, he did one book on addiction. It was called Chasing the Scream. And uh, he quoted one of the quotes in there that he says is the opposite of addiction is connection, not sobriety. And I think that's beautiful because if you think about, especially when people transition out of a career that they love, that was their tribe, that was their, their group, their unit. And whether it's retirement, you know, being fired, uh, promoted to a desk, whatever it is, you see a lot of people struggle, military first responders, especially. But you went from one tribe and as you pointed out, some were real friends, some were, you know, fair weather friends, as they say. But then you found another community to transition to, whether it was the, the bottles and badges or whether it was reps or responders. So I think that's a, that's a, such an important takeaway from what you told us is that you've got to find that supportive tribe. One tribe took you out drinking. And like you said, you were part of that, but you were drinking, yeah. you were doing drugs. Another tribe was healing and working out. And it's kind of like we used the description earlier with prison. One tribe takes you down to law school. The other tribe takes you down to gang life. You know, it's, it depends on which tribe you surround yourself with.
1: And it's fun. Like, and I've learned too, like, you can have the best support system in the world, but like, you have to be honest. That's obviously like the biggest thing is being honest with these people. And sometimes that's not the easiest thing to do. And like, there have been times where I wasn't honest with them or myself. And, you know, you take those mistakes and you take those experiences and you learn from them. And, you know, but, Honesty with anybody is obviously, you know, in these in this world that I'm in now and the relationships that I've built, the friendships that I've built, it's just honesty and being, you know, open with people is the biggest it's and it's not always easy. Like I said, I don't want to say like being sober is easy because it's not um, nor is, you know, being in therapy, like sometimes therapy sucks. You know what I mean? Um, but you remember after why you're there Um and you feel better, you know. Like I paid my therapist $170 you know, an hour just to sit there and cry. <laughs> uh, but you feel better after, you know. So I mean <laughs> everybody's different. Um, but I've been able to find like a like a good support network, like you said, um, a good community. And I'm lucky for that, you know. Some people aren't as lucky or they're just not ready for that. You know what I mean? And we get that guys, you know, people through reps who come and they're not ready to surrender like they say. And that's fine. The biggest thing is just being there for people. You know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. You well, the
1: option to come.
0: Well, I think the, one of the real negative factors that contributes to a lot of the struggles is when we were younger, and I talk about this a lot because I think it's it's a real thing. A lot of us were exposed to masculinity being John Wayne, Arnold, you know, they're not crying. They're just killing Viet Cong by the the scores, and you know, adjusting their headband and walking off into the sunset. And then you actually look at real men, and I always point to the Band of Brothers. There's the show, the real men of Easy Company that's talk in their 80s, 90s by that point, and they're still moved and in tears by what they did and what they saw and who they lost. That's masculinity, and that's courageous vulnerability to cry on a you know on screen from millions to see so this is the other thing that we're dealing with this you know oh tough guys keep it in no it takes so much more strength and courage to be vulnerable and ask for help and or be vulnerable and find someone who needs help a lot of us you know if you're doing well beautiful but you're the shoulder let your partner right. cry on it you know but if you're parading around like a peacock even though you're dying inside that's actually cowardice that's not courage
1: no, it's not. And I've talked about this before. <clears throat> you need to be like the whole like tough macho shit, like in that, you know, world in the law enforcement world, like should be thrown out the window, like everybody is a person, I, you know, you don't need to put on like this facade of I'm like big and tough and, you know, a dead baby is not going to you know bother me like that in that interview. Like, what do you want me to say? Yeah, I'm going to be okay. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, and no one should ever say, yeah, I'll be okay. Cause you have no idea.
0: You talked about your early life being a pretty solid foundation, which is beautiful. Have you been able to identify some of the negative factors that led you into addiction?
1: Yeah, but I'm not going to talk about them um, because there are things that I haven't fully worked out yet. Uh, But I will say this. It's funny that you bring up like that. The whole macho, tough guy thing that I just lost my train of thought on. Um, Like mine came from like the gym. You know, like, this is something that I've explored before. Is like, where did I get this, like, tough guy attitude from? Like, you know, like, my dad was never, like, imposed like this boys don't cry aspect on me. You know what I mean? um And I was like, where did I get this from? Like, mine came from the gym of, like, watching videos of, when I was in college, watching videos of bodybuilders. Like, Ronnie Coleman and, like, Jay Cutler were, like, the famous bodybuilders when I was in college. And I'm watching videos of these guys, and they're just throwing up 800 pounds, like, walking around massive. And I'm like, oh, that's what a, that's what a fucking... Yeah, that's man fucking big strong you know and that now you bring into a career where you need to be big and strong and that's where like my whole aspect of like well I don't need help I'm tough you know what i mean but like you said like tough is asking for help you know and then asking for help again when you've already done it because sometimes it gets easier but sometimes it doesn't you know um that's tough and you need to be emotional like you said but you also need to be able to control your emotions as well um you can't just be a walking you know cry baby like i don't want to say it but like cry baby all the time and just cry about everything you need to be able to you know handle what you need to handle in the moment but then realize that it's something that you need to eventually address and go address it when you're ready you know, that's the that's really like the important thing, especially as a cop, is like in the moment, you do what you need to do. You put on that face, you put on that front, you know, when you're working, when you're dealing with EDPs or gang members or whatever it is, you know, you do what you need to do to be tough. Um, but after you need to know that there, there's different ways of being tough. And sometimes that involves crying or, you know, picking up the phone and asking for help.
0: Absolutely. Well, I always talk about the yin yang. You know, you've got the the black and the white and obviously each piece has a tiny bit of, of the other one inside it. But, you know, a man, a woman, whatever, a human being is hard and soft, you know, and what we end up doing, especially in uniform, is that soft part kind of fades away and it ends up just a, a white circle. Well, you know, absolutely. I agree. Like if I go into a structure fire, I can't be like, hey, fire, come over here. Let's talk about your feeling. No, I've got to put it out with a hose. You know, I've got to cut that family out of a car. But when we get back... And we just saw a decapitated three-year-old in the back seat because their tweaker mom had been up for two days and ended up crashing into the side of a freeway. You have to process that shit. Like you said, how would you, would you be able to see it? I can see it, but I sure as shit better deal with that because no human being should have to see it. And so we see it. So no one else has to, you know what I mean? So we're being asked to do things that 90, whatever percent of the population just fucking do not want to do. And they're like, yeah, you do that. Okay. Well, fair enough. But there's a cost to that. And if you're not bringing in that soft, that, um, I think Yang, if i got that right. Then you're going to end up being so brittle that you're just going to break to pieces eventually.
1: And some issues with that is when you're in bigger departments, like you don't have time to process calls after you've been on one, cause you probably have to go to another one. You know what I mean? Um. But like as department wise you want to talk about like admin and stuff like that like there should be policies in place mental health policies where if you see XYZ where they're considered a traumatic event a traumatic experience like you're mandatory you need to go see somebody and it shouldn't just be a hey are you okay do you need anything yeah I'm good because most most people are going to say yeah I'm good you know what I mean there should be a little bit more in-depth work of well did seeing that dead baby is that really messing with you right now or, or are you just telling me you're okay Uh, And I don't want to speak for this person, um, but I truly believe that, like, one of the guys I got jammed up with who started progressing um, and getting worse with, like, alcohol and drugs, like, if you want to look at a timeline, like, he did CPR on a guy who committed suicide in the gun room, in the locker room. He responded, was doing suicide to, or uh, CPR to a guy with no head. And he got zero, like, wasn't asked for any treatment or anything after that incident. So it's like... It's got to be more done here, obviously.
0: Yeah, and sometimes right after the incident isn't the right time. You know, you you might you might rear his head a month, you know, a a week, a month, a year. I was uh, that was a real call—the decapitated three-year-old—and I was in Disney. I wrote about this in my book. I was in Disney, and it was shit. Five, no more than that. Eight, nine years later, and someone was wheeling their uh, their kid in a stroller. And it was the same little hangs, uh, little legs hanging out of a blanket that the engine crew had thrown over this this kid. And I flashed immediately back. hadn't hadn't had any flashbacks ever in my life, and I flashed back to this kid. And I just got this rush of adrenaline, and end up sitting down. I told my wife, I'm like, hey, just let me just sit down for a few minutes. And luckily, that was super mild compared to you know what some people deal with in in our profession as far as flashbacks and nightmares, etc. But it gave me a. An insight like fuck. I can't imagine having this over and over and over again. So that was years later. But again, it goes back to at the front door. Have you got the people? It might be an hour after your incident. It might be a year. It might be two days before your retirement. But you need to have that direct correlation. I mean, the direct relationship. Excuse me, with that person that you trust and be like, you're not going to fucking believe this. Twenty five years ago, I had a drowning, and I just had a fucking flashback and fell on my knees. Beautiful. Let's talk about it. Come on in.
1: It's crazy how the mind works, isn't it? How it can block away this awful event and just one thing, boom, it becomes so real to you the next.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about that then. So, you know, you you have this incredible upswing. You know, you've got the community, you've got these great organizations that you've named, reps and responders. Um, you've joined them yourself. Talk to me about what made you decide to actually be, part of the solution, wearing a completely different, you know, work uniform now and going into the world of mental health yourself.
1: Yeah. So right now, so I was working for a moving company. I still work for a moving company, just put, you know, food on the table, product, you know, a roof, whatever. But I started looking into like career options, obviously. And with my therapist, we go through this, we're talking about things and she brings up like going back to school for what she does. And I'm like, Uh, I don't know, like I'm not the smartest person in the world. Um, You know, maybe whatever, going back to school and getting more school loans doesn't really appeal to me. You know what I mean? Do they have Uh, a
0: math prerequisite? Or were you good?
1: (laughs) Research and statistics. So uh, I did take the first time in college uh, last semester, um, which I had to get a tutor for because I was not doing that well. Fine. Um, I ended up getting hired by the Iron Workers Union up here. Uh, I got into their apprenticeship program. So I was like, I'll just be go be a blue collar worker. You know what I mean? Let me go. I get back my pension. I get back really good health benefits. Uh, the job is going to probably provide an adrenaline rush being up on you know buildings and bridges and what lot. So i had gone through the process. I get accepted. But just for shits and giggles, I end up applying to grad school at the same time. I got accepted into grad school and I got accepted into the apprenticeship. It's like the, literally the same like day or like days apart. So I'm like sitting ready to fill out the paperwork to start my apprenticeship. I'm ready to pay my first union dues. And I'm, I like literally just like stand up and I'm like, fuck this. I don't want to do this. You know? So I go into grad school and the idea came from working with reps. You know, I started realizing that I feel good helping people. You know what I mean? Like that's, it's corny to say, like, you become a cop, yeah, the benefits are good, whatever, the, the pay is decent, it's not great, it's decent, but like, you have to have, like, some desire to help people if you want to be a cop, unless you're one of those people where you shouldn't be a cop in the first place, you have a desire to help people, and you feel good when you do that, and that was me. So, when I started getting that feeling back, I got back what I had lost previously, which was purpose. Um. So I'm doing it and I'm like, you know what? Let me just make some money doing this now. Let me just make this my career. How else can I help people? Well, I, I have experience in that first responder world. I'm I'm helping people now. Seems like I'm pretty good at it. Let me learn. Let me go and learn how to really do it. You know, let me broaden the scope of who I can help. I don't want to just help like a few cops who, you know, reach out to reps or whatever. Like I want to really start helping people and understand what people have gone through and help them process it and make them feel like they're not alone and, you know, and here I am. Uh, I'm a year in. Last fall, I took five classes. My program is fully online, thank God. So last fall, I took five classes. Last spring, I took five. Currently, I'm in the summer course where I'm taking four classes. And then next month, I start my mini internship with a few classes. And then next spring, May 24, I'll be in an internship and graduate. That's amazing. Oh, so, uh, I'm looking forward to it it's been a challenge which has been good for me because I I enjoy challenges you know I, I like doing things that are hard uh grad school has definitely been hard because mind you like my background in education is criminal justice so like everything that I'm learning I have to like pretty much self-teach because of an online program like there's no You know, lectures or anything like that are very minimal. So I'm teaching myself all this information. I'm trying to retain as much as I can while I work full time and, you know, take care of who I need to take care of and, you know, fulfill personal responsibilities and whatnot. Um, You know, like I have a two-year-old. He requires like a ton of work and a ton of time. Um, And, you know, I do bedtime a lot. So like my work, I'm starting my homework at like nine, 10 o'clock at night and staying up till one, two in the morning waking up going to work like it's it's been a grind it's been tough but and you get through it like i said through that support system um and realizing that you know it's all for a better purpose
0: absolutely well as you're going through all this training have there been modules that have addressed your own self care? Because one of the questions I ask a lot of the counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists is how do you offload your own vicarious trauma? Because I know just from, from this listening, there's some weeks where there's just some really, really dark conversations. And, you know, if I'm not hitting the pause button myself, you can feel it. I mean, you absorb that trauma as well. So have they addressed that up to this point in your training?
1: Yeah. We've thought like, like the program's online. So yeah, I've, you know, I've learned about vicarious trauma and, you know, they, they encourage every therapist to have a therapist. Um, But a lot of like with the program I'm in because of the style of the, you know, the courses and everything like that. Like I, I take it upon myself to kind of dig deeper into things and like, I'll talk to my therapist about, you know, certain things that are brought up in school that I may not fully understand. And I'll get her opinion on it. You know what I mean? So, and it's another added benefit of being in therapy and being in a clinical mental health program is I'm able to, you know, ask her some questions. Um, And the biggest thing is like, it's self-care. I know it's like kind of corny, but you need to practice self-care, you know, and whether that be like going to therapy or going to the gym or just going for a walk, making time for the people who are important in your life and make you feel good. You know, that's all it is. And easier said than done, obviously, but you need to make it a priority.
0: Well, one last kind of area before we go to some closing questions. So many people are discouraged because they try a thing once and they're like, that was bullshit, it didn't work. Like you said, counseling, you know, EMDR, whatever. The more, the longer this podcast has gone on, the bigger this toolbox is becoming of things that might be the right combination for a certain individual. It might be surfing and psychedelics. It might be EMDR and, um, you know, uh, hypnotherapy. It might be all kinds of things. So what would you tell the responder or anyone else who's listening about the journey of finding the right therapy for themselves and not giving up with that first, especially the first kind of EIP, EAP nightmare that I've heard so often.
1: You need to understand going into it that number one, you're not, you may not hit on the first try. So you need to just be honest with yourself and hopefully like you're getting some guidance with this too, because I was able to get some guidance and find the right one as well. Um, So don't be afraid to ask questions. You know what I mean? Like vet out who you're going to talk to. Try and see if they really understand a little bit of what you're going through or if they're just bullshitting you just just to try and get you into the door. You know, because it's going to be trial and error with finding a therapist and then it's going to be trial and error in therapy. You know, like there may be things that you do that don't work well. You know, like EMDR may not work for you okay there's other things that you can do you know don't be frustrated just because one thing doesn't work because there's a, a list of other things and i've gone through that too like i've tried to do emdr and like my brain just like racks everywhere where like i can't concentrate enough on the bilateral stimulation so like it doesn't work that well for me so you cross off the list and you know you go to the next one um like i'm doing something now called parts work uh, have you heard of parts work actually i haven't heard haven't heard of that one no So I haven't like learned the education side of it, but just from experience, like there's different parts in in all of us, right? Like there's the fear side, there's the protector, there's the rational side of us and they all work, you know, they all play their role. So like for me, I've been doing some work. So like, I literally like, this is, I'll describe what I do. It's going to sound crazy, but like, for me, like I jump into a black hole and I fall down until I meet the person I want to talk to the part of myself that I want to talk to. You know, I say, I want to talk to fear. I'm trying to figure out why I do certain things. Like what is fear protecting me from, right? So I'm down there and I'm talking to fear and I start having a conversation with him in my head. And we just, you go back and forth. I know I sound like a crazy person. No, you go back, you go back and forth with fear and you ask some questions to try and get some answers. And then once you get some answers from him, you go down and you jump down in the hole even further and boom, you hit flat. And I start talking to, you know, another part of me. And when my therapist tried to do this with me, I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm fucking no. And I'm going through and sometimes I'm like, this is insane that this works. (laughs) And, and it's giving me some answers into some things that I'm looking for in therapy and we get done and you know, we'll ground, I'll get grounded or whatever and we'll get done. And I'm just like, this is insane. I'm like, I feel so weird doing this, but at the same time, like, this is working so well. So, you know, just because something might sound... And the purpose of that is just because you might think something's going to be crazy and you might feel a little weird doing it. You know, you got to be open to new things too as well.
0: Absolutely. I was introduced to a couple of things. Firstly, hypnotherapy, which uh, Courtney Starkey was on the show a few weeks ago. And she talked about, you know, it's not like you immediately come out and you're like oh my god i feel so much better it was a slow leeching of something new and i talked to her about I, i've i spoke to frank about this for a long time, I leaned into alcohol just as a unwinding mechanism, which, as we all know, when we dive into psychology is so wrong. But So I was never a binge drinker, never drank to forget any of that stuff. But I just kind of, you know, would have the one, two a night, and then that kind of messes up your sleep. And occasionally it would go to like three or four if I was with my wife. And, you know, we'd and be like, okay, time out. This is getting too much. And we'd be able to pull it back just fine. But the fact that you even needed it at all is still an issue. Um, and so... I've done two sessions with her. We're doing another one this week. But I, for example, I haven't had a drink for a month now. And it's just because I don't want to, because I think it's starting to clear away the chaff that, you know, and underneath you're like, oh, there's a thing. But with her, just to you know, the point with the feeling crazy, you're talking to like alternate lives in the Spidey-verse that we all exist in. You know, the, the If it truly is infinity, then there's James Gearing doing a thousand other things you know and you're talking to yourself at the same time who's gone down a different path and then you have um what they call genius i guess the the actual um definition of genius is almost like a spirit guide so you're talking to them like you know i'm trying to write my second book and you say all right well then ask the genius ask for help you know And, and you're like oh okay sounds crazy but again why the fuck not you know what's crazy sitting in a dark room with a bottle of scotch that's fucking crazy if this shit will work like you said get the ego down get your preconceived ideas and biases and throw them in a rubbish bin and just fucking go for it because what have you got to lose if it works you're going to look down and go i can't believe i went down a big black hole but fuck me it worked so there we go well,
1: and it's with like this kind of work too is like i've been able to do it away from therapy as well um I found out what it's like, like we talked about like you being triggered and whatnot, you know, from something that you're unexpected. Like I found out that when it happens and you open like kind of Pandora's box to some experiences that you've been protecting yourself from, it can become like very real and very intrusive is the word, right? Intrusive thoughts. Like it feels so real, like it's all happening again. And some of the things that I've learned in session and therapy, I've been able to use when some of this stuff happens, when I'm out and about driving and all of a sudden for whatever reason I'm triggered and something that's happened in the past feels like it's happening right now. You know, some of these things you can use like away from therapy as well. And I've been able to do that too. So the biggest thing you said is ego. Like just check the ego, get rid of it. You know, it's not going to help you leave it at the door go in there with an open mind um, and ask questions, you know, don't be afraid to ask, you know, the question was, you know, How do you find like the right therapist? Like, what do you do? Like ask questions, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions as to why you're doing this. Like, you know, I asked, like, why are we doing this? Like, what's the benefit, you know? And, you know, you get the answers. And if you don't like the answers, okay. You know, maybe it's not for you, whatever, but don't give it a shot. Like you said, what do you have to lose?
0: Nothing. If it doesn't work.
1: Okay.
0: Back to the drawing board. Yeah. Try something else. There's so many options. And it's funny. I've had people that have had success in, you know, all kinds of things. Like I said, psychedelics and ketamine and some of those surfing, hiking, you know, women's retreats, you know, and then traditional stuff. And then some people, even pharmaceuticals to get them through a certain path. Maybe that's that's a a temporary band aid that will get you to the point where you can start delving into the trauma should never be a long term thing in my opinion unless you truly have some you know biochemical thing that cannot be addressed any other way but uh you know it's still a tool if you're an absolute crisis and it will kind of bring you down to where you can start actually interacting with a counselor beautiful just make sure you have an exit strategy with that drug
1: yep and that's what's like with like therapy and stuff like that like i don't go every week sometimes because i don't need to you know what I mean, but that's what's great about like building a good rapport and therapeutic relationship with therapists or accounts or whatever, is I know when I do need to go back and I do feel you know off and things are triggering me. If I can't handle it on my own, I know that I'm able to you know go in there and, and start the work again. But you know it doesn't have to be every single week. You know once you've kind of started you know healing and whatnot. Like some guys think like, oh, I'm, if I go to therapy, like I'm going to be, when do I get out? Like, am I going to be in therapy forever? Like people are going to think I'm crazy. Uh, no, you know what I mean? Like I remember I had a conversation with my mom um, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm still in therapy or whatever. And this is like two years after the incident. And she was like, why? And I was like, well, I, I like it, you know, but like, it's just some people don't understand that it's okay to be in there long term. You know what I mean? It's not just like a go in and you're gonna fix everything you know there's work involved and then like I said when the work is done and things are status quo and things are good in life don't go back if you don't need to work continue you know it's, it's a personal choice
0: I had a guest who's a friend of mine uh, Dina Ali she's a firefighter in Raleigh actually in North Carolina and one of the things she said was if we can actually figure out the community again the conversation the you know, the, the the kitchen table and the firehouse and get it back to how it used to be, then we may not need peer support anymore because we're organically peer support. You know, I don't think the the pygmies, you know, in Uganda have a peer support program. They are a tribe that's cohesive and they take care of each other and, you know, it's in it's in built into their tribal kind of way of life. I think because we've deviated so far from that, I think, you know, maybe one day you know, a lot of us won't need as much counseling because we'll, we'll have that kind of lower grade, continuous counseling within the home, within the community, within the workplace. But what's so sad is at the moment, there's so much division. And I would argue, you know, a lot of normal people in the middle aren't divided, but we're exposed to so much, you know, division and clickbait and anger and all this stuff. So we're in an environment that's setting people up to fail even more than ever with these last, you know, six Or so years where there's been a deliberate attempt to divide people on anything you can find, whether it's masks and vaccines to race to religion to immigration, you name it, pick a side. We push against that and rebuild community and see people as people. I think that, you know, there'll always be those professions that are there that we need as well, but I think there'll be a lot more healing within that tribal community as well.
1: Well, like to talk about reps for responders, like that's kind of like where. Like, that's what we want to do. Like everybody deals with things differently, right? Like some people may not need therapy. Like some people may be able to go into the ocean and surf, like you said, and that's how they handle, you know, seeing something shitty and that works for them. Great. Other people can't, but maybe fishing works for somebody, you know, great. Like there's a million things that people can do to handle stress, anxiety, um, there isn't like just this, this one way path to recovery and recovery is not just, you know, from substance abuse. It can be from anything. Uh, and that's what we like, we stress at reps is there's multiple paths to recovery uh, and we'll help you find those, you know, like, we're not like, you need to be in meetings. Like AA is the best thing ever because the meetings styles that we run, they're not AA meetings. You know, like we talk about a variety of things from physical health, metabolic health, nutrition, Sprinkle in some recovery talk in there because there are people in recovery in there as well. Um, But that's, you know, we try and cover every single basis and make it known to people like there's multiple paths to recovery here. Like, you know, you can explore some different options. And if those things don't work, well, maybe then you need to look into maybe seeing a therapist or getting some counseling, you know, but it's not like you you have to go right into therapy or you need to be like, for me, like you need to be right into an inpatient program. You know, like well no, I don't, or why do you think that you know what I mean? like most tasks recovery you just need to find you need to find
0: the one that works absolutely, well, I want to be mindful of your time, so I'm gonna throw some quick closing questions at you. The first one, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated,
1: So I'm not a big book guy, I'll be completely honest with you um extreme ownership by jocko willock is a good one uh i read that through uh i took away a lot from that book because owning your mistakes and owning your fuck-ups is a very hard thing to do um and that book will teach you a lot about leadership as well uh which is an important quality to me um so i highly recommend that book for anybody especially like if you're in a leadership position if you have any type of rank or anything like that, like read the book, learn how to get people's respect, learn how to have people, you know, do what you would like them to do uh, without just telling them to do it. You know what I mean? No one respects that. Um, And you might like this one. So I just read The Rescuer.
0: Jason Sotel.
1: Yep. I just read that book. Um, I'd recommend that book. Uh, There's a lot of, firefighter stories in there obviously but doing a little research on him and kind of digging into him now uh I would definitely recommend that book to anybody especially first responders it's a good one um I I just wrote a paper on it actually I actually had to like diagnose go through DSM5 and find a diagnosis and everything like that uh so it's
0: it an interesting book I liked it yeah, he he leaned heavily into his faith as well. So that's, you know, another another one of the tools in that toolbox. Some people, you know, the the uh, the faith side might be, you know, Jesus has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. Doesn't work for some people. For other people that are deeply embedded in a certain faith, that might be the very thing that actually, you know, turns the corner for them.
1: Yeah, and that's awesome for them. Like you said, faith might be for somebody, it may not be for somebody. If you can find, you know, if you can heal from faith, have at it. Believe in whatever you want to believe in. <laughs> absolutely
0: all right well then same kind of question what about a uh, a film a movie and or a documentary
1: i don't want to, like what i'm gonna say isn't like it's not gonna help anybody it's just a good
0: documentary it doesn't matter you can say the barbie movie if you want no <laughs> if you
1: have some time watch the documentary on woodstock not the, like the original one the second one with like limp biscuit and like corn is that the one that failed is that right oh yeah it failed yeah it failed big time if you grew up in that era, like if you grew up in that era, like you need to watch that documentary because it's going to blow your mind. It's fucked up what
0: happened down there. Okay, beautiful. Yeah, I've never seen that one fire either. That was about some big party that never happened. That was a big scam, I think.
1: Yeah, Firefly. I saw that one as well. Is that good? Uh, the Woodstock one was a lot better. Okay,
0: brilliant. All right. Well, the next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Yeah, um, I don't want to butcher his last name. His name is Jason. He's part of Reps. Um, his IG handle is uh the real Jumpman j Jay.
0: Oh, Jay's been on here. Uh, Jay's already been on the show. Yes. Yep.
1: All right. Well, good for you then for getting him on here. <laughs> um i need to go again then which is fine uh, there's a guy up here in new jersey his name is brian Galepsi. uh he's retired co in recovery does a ton of good work for first responders is incredibly knowledgeable has an awesome story um i would recommend him come on here i think a lot of first responders uh, whether you have you know any type of substance abuse problem or not we be able to take something away from what he has to offer and what he has to say
0: beautiful well i think that's a big thing too when we when we have these conversations it's not just about the addiction there's, there's someone's whole lifespan which is why i asked the early life questions as well sometimes it's traumatic sometimes it's it's a beautiful upbringing you know but it's this is the thing too you're not defined by your addiction which i think is i was thinking this the other day there's people that as you were talking about, they tell their story week in, week out. They tour, you know, fire departments or whatever it is. And you always kind of ask the question, when do you move on? When does that stop being your identity? You were in this fire or this shooting or whatever, and you've told the story because I've had guests that were like, James, I'm, I'm doing your podcast and this is it. I'm done because I'm tired of of living there and I, I need to move on. And even uh, Brian McKenzie, who's a big... um. You know, big in the kind of uh, strength and conditioning and, and breath world, he was saying the same with AA. He's like, it worked for me incredibly, but one day I was like, I don't want to keep going because I I don't want to be reminded of that. I've moved on now. So you know, interesting perspectives depending on on the individual.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I said yeah, I said it before. Like I I was telling it too much and I was triggering myself, so I stopped for a while um until I felt comfortable and ready to to go ahead and start again. So it is interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but again, the whole, the person's whole timeline, that's a whole different thing. And if you can find different ways to have conversations, so you're not just dragging them down the same path every time, hopefully it's much more interesting for them as well. All right. Well, then we talked about vicarious trauma. Um, What do you do to decompress?
1: So I, I love the ocean and I love the beach. It used to be like, I used to think going to the gym was my way to decompress, but like going to the gym now and like working out, like it's just like part of who I am. It's part of my, like my weekly daily routine. So, like, I did a lot of work on how to, like, on how to decompress. And I just found that, like, being on the beach, like, just listening to waves, like, is, like, the only time I feel calm, you know, where I can shut things down and really just, like, be present in the moment. You know, for me, like, all day, I'm just, like, go, 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 go. You know, like, I have no stop. But for whatever reason, like, when I'm on a beach and I just sit and just listen to the waves, like, everything slows down. That's like my, my place to decompress. And I'll do it. Like I've done it at three in the morning before where for whatever reason, I was anxious, had anxiety about something. And I'll go drive down to the beach. Like at home, I live an hour away. Like I drove down to the beach and just sat and just decompressed and almost got ran over by the thing that's raking the sand <laughs> in the beach.
0: Ended up in the paper again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's been my thing. Is to beach just
0: comic. No. I'm I'm exactly the same as you. Our beach is just under two hours away. There's there's closer ones, but there's this one called Crescent Beach, south of St Augustine here, and there's something about the energy there. It's it's amazing, and in the winter time, I'll be able to run my dog, and it's pretty quiet. And I'll we'll walk for like you know two two and a half miles one way, and then walk the other way back, and. Just the energy. And even with the, we're lucky in Florida, we have cruises and they're everywhere, you know, and they're cheap if you're a Florida resident. So the same thing, I'll pay for the one that has the balcony and I'll just sit out there and drink coffee and I don't need to be doing the conga up on the pool deck. I want to be down there with the quiet, you know, watching the sailfish yeah. and, and just chilling. So, yeah, I, I totally understand.
1: It's it's the ocean whatever, and whatever it is out there, it just does it for me.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, then for people listening, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people that would love to reach out to you, learn more about reps and, and, you know, maybe even one day be one of your uh, your clients. So where are the best places to find reps online? And then what about yourself on social media?
1: So reps, uh, you can find us online through Instagram. It's just at reps for responders is the handle. I need to look up my handle, which is sad because I should know it by heart by now um but i'm fairly positive it is nick underscore rfr4 and just shoot me a dm like my phone is pretty much always on me um i get back to everybody and same thing with the reps account uh just shoot the account a dm somebody will get back to you and someone will reach out to you beautiful
0: well nick i want to say thank you i mean as we talked about courageous vulnerability the people that come on here and drop the facade you know but honest and then you don't have to if you never had trauma you know being a dark place and that's fine that's not the facade that's reality but most of us have most of us have had some some pretty deep lows in our life so for you to come on though and talk about alcohol specifically i know there were pills as well but i think that's the elephant in the room you know we look down on those oh this guy's on on meth this guy's on you know on heroin yeah but the we're all on booze and no one's <laughs> talking about that so i think it's a very important and courageous uh, conversation so i want to thank you so so much for coming on the show today
1: absolutely i'm happy to be here and you know like i said if anybody ever needs it just shoot a dm that's it